Well, good evening, living room. Hope you guys are doing well. Doing okay? Awesome. Well, hey, my name is Samer, as Trey said, and I actually get to lead the living room down at KSU at our other church campus, Woodstock City Church, uh, up in Cherokee. Y'all are like, ugh. Um, but so, me too, kind of. But that's where, um, that's where I am. So I get to lead down there. Me and Brad get to work together, and so it's always fun to get to be here with you guys up at Buckhead. So just wanted y'all to know where I come from and what I'm doing here. So we're kicking off a brand new series today, and one thing you need to know about me is that uh, tomorrow I'll be married. We'll have been married for four months. Tomorrow's my four-month anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I don't know, like, you know, in your first year, it's like, oh, four months, six months, all these random numbers is like something you should celebrate. So I don't even know if we're really going to celebrate four months. Maybe I should just to be a good husband. But, but I've been with Julie, my wife, uh, for two years before that. So we've been together for almost two and a half years. And I've learned to like a lot of things that I didn't like before we were together. And I've learned to get excited about a lot of things that I never thought I'd get excited about before we were together. And, and one of those things, let me just give you an example. So um, I, I went to Bed Bath & Beyond just recently, uh, a few weeks ago, and I bought a brand new sponge. That word came out of my mouth. That, that, that sentence came out of my mouth. And it is a sponge that has changed my life in so many ways. It's called the Sponge Daddy. Uh, it's, yeah, um, y'all ever heard of this? I'm not even joking. Okay, this was on Shark Tank. It is the number one most sold product that has ever been on Shark Tank because it's the greatest sponge in the world. This thing will change your life if you like to do dishes or if you have to, like me in our household. That's kind of how it works. And I love this thing, right? It gets, it's very like firm under cold water and it gets really soft under hot water. And then you can like put spoons through here. It's unbelievable. This thing will change your life. And it makes me excited to do the dishes in a way that I never thought that I would excited to do the dishes for. Thank you, Julie, for marrying me. Brad, I'll buy you one of these. Um, but I'm not sure. Uh, but, but another thing that, that I tend to get excited about that I never thought I would get excited about, um, Julie loves to watch HGTV. Like she loves HGTV like I like to watch ESPN. And, and she doesn't understand how I can watch the same sports center three times in a row and it's the same highlights. I don't understand either. Guys, we'll never be able to explain it to women. But, uh, but I love ESPN, but she loves HGTV. So when we were together, we'd always watch a lot of HGTV. And at first I was really reluctant I was like, listen, houses, homes, okay, yeah, whatever. But the more we watched, I kind of started to like it. I really did. And then very quickly, our favorite show, as you could guess, became Fixer Upper. Any Fixer Upper fans in the house? Do you guys like that? So it's a fantastic show, really, okay? Uh, trust me, dudes, just check it out if, if you get a chance on HGTV. But the show is basically this, this power couple, married couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines. And basically, they take some lucky young couple, they'll show them a bunch of houses that need to be fixed up, and then Chip and Joanna Gaines will renovate them, and they'll redecorate them, and do some re-landscaping, and fix it up for them, and then they get to live in this home. Uh, side note, uh, Brad Horton, uh, who runs this thing here at Buckhead, he actually is fraternity brothers with Chip Gaines, the husband on the show. So that's my claim to fame. Thanks for that. And um, so the, the show has become really, really popular, and it's made the term fixer-upper really popular. But that term, there's nothing new about that. It's been a slang term in the real estate world for a really, really long time, and it's basically a house um, that it's not like condemned. It's not deemed unsafe to live in, but a fixer-upper is a house that it's out of date doesn't look good. You really wouldn't want to live in it unless you have to. It needs some revamped landscaping. It needs a fresh coat of paint. It needs some remodeling. It needs redecorating. It needs some, the wallpaper needs to be ripped out. Most fixer-uppers have wallpaper, right? And so it's a, it's a house that needs a lot and a lot of work. And, and when you look at a fixer-upper, 
It can kind of be daunting. It's like there is no amount of anything that can make this house better, right? There is no amount of paint. There is no amount of remodeling. There's no amount of anything you could do to make this house better than what it is. A fixer-upper, the present value of a fixer-upper is not very high. I mean, you're looking at anything and there's, there's just no chance for this thing. The present value is extremely, extremely low. But here's the beauty in a fixer-upper. The beauty in a fixer-upper isn't in what you see, it's in what it could be. It's in its potential. And it's amazing, right, when, when, when these people, what you see, what they do with these fixer-uppers, where when you put a little bit of effort, when you put in some work and you have a plan, it's amazing the amount of value that is added to a home that didn't have much before. And if you've ever seen a show, if you've ever even seen it in real life, it's amazing. It's amazing to see a house that had zero value at all, then you kind of see the process, and then you see it become something that's actually worth Living. It's actually relatively inspiring, and I think there's, there's something about it that kind of grips us. There's something about seeing something that was old becoming new that's inspiring. There's something about seeing something that needs a lot of fixing become fixed, something that had zero value now be given a lot more value than it ever had. And I think the reason why shows like this and even just the idea of fixer up in the real estate market world has become so big and the reason why we connect with it is because I think It's something we can not only relate to, but something we might, in a weird way, hope for our very own lives. We're kicking off, as you can tell, a brand new series today called Fixer Upper. And the reason why we're calling it Fixer Upper is because I think that it is a fantastic analogy for where a lot of us might find ourselves in life. Right? It's like we're a bunch of little fixer-uppers walking around, trying to navigate the complexities of life, trying to navigate the complexities of faith, trying to navigate the complexities of doing college while having a faith and figuring out how in the world that's supposed to work. And you might kind of step back and look at different areas of your life and think, need a little bit of work there. You might look at the present value of a relationship. You might look at the present value of your relationship history. You might look at the present value of your friendships. You might look at the present value of your influence. You might look at the present value of your self-control. You might look at the present value of your character. You might look at the present value of your friendships. You might look at the present value of your current spiritual growth. And you might look back and say, I feel like this needs a little bit of work. There's a certain area of everything, and I, I, I want this to be different. I want this to be better. There's just not as much value in this area of my life that I want there to be, but I'm just not quite sure what to do. In fact, and, and if that's you, right, you, you wouldn't be alone. If you, Google, if you Google what are the top 10 most common New Year's resolutions, you'll get a bunch of articles that have lists of, of different things. And almost every single one of those lists has people who resolved to uh, enjoy a more fulfilling life. That every single year there are people whose goal and whose New Year's resolution is to enjoy a more fulfilling life. In other words, what they did in 2015, what they pursued in 2015, there are certain areas of their life in 2015 or maybe their life as a whole that wasn't as fulfilling, that did not hold as much value, that weren't as good as they wanted them to be. And you might look at certain areas of your life and think, I just, I want there to be a little bit more. I want there to be a little bit of growth. I want them to get a little bit better. So what do we do? In fact, what's the one thing? What's the one thing that will start to add value to areas of your life that are a mess and will admittedly kind of continue to be a mess if you're in control the entire time? What's the one thing that will make 2016 
unlike any other year that you ever had? What's the one thing that will make you feel like you're becoming the person that God has created you to be rather than hoping you'll just magically get there one day? That's what we're going to be unpacking here for the next few weeks. And to kind of start us off, we're going to be looking um, at the book of 1 Timothy. Now, 1 Timothy um, was actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul. A lot of the New Testament was letters written from people to churches, from people to groups of people, from people to people. This one was the Apostle Paul. He wrote a letter to Timothy, right? So that's kind of easy to figure out. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to Timothy. Now, the Apostle Paul and Timothy had a very close relationship. Paul was a mentor to Timothy. Timothy was like his spiritual son, right? Like Paul taught Timothy how to shoot free throws. Like they're that kind of relationship, right? They're really close. And Paul really believed in Timothy. Uh, Paul believed that Timothy was set up to do a lot of really cool things, that God was going to use Timothy in in a really big way. And so Paul, he sent Timothy over to Ephesus to go pastor a church. Now, Timothy's having a rough go at things because he was relatively young during that time to be the pastor of a church. So he wasn't getting very much respect from the elders, and he wasn't getting very much respect from the people that he was trying to lead and teach. And so Timothy's having a rough go at things. And what we know about Timothy is that he was very shy, he was very timid, and he was very easily intimidated. And so he was letting this whole age thing get in the way, and there were people not trusting him, not allowing him to lead. And Timothy would have looked at the present value of his influence, He would have looked at the present value of his ministry. He would have looked at the present value of what he felt like God had called him to do, and he was not seeing much. To the point to where we are almost positive that he wrote Paul asking him if he could leave Ephesus and just go rejoin Paul. I mean, he was done. He was like, hey, Paul, bro, ain't happening, not working. I got a role. Please let me come. And so Paul, rather, writes Timothy this letter to encourage him and to give him some much-needed direction. And and the reason why I want to look at this is because Timothy's struggle trying to figure out his role here and trying to figure out how he can make this situation different and step into who God has called him to be is a very similar struggle that a lot of us would kind of face, trying to step into who God has called us to be. And you'd kind of look back and look at certain areas and see the present value of certain areas and wish that you saw more. And the Apostle Paul gives Timothy one thing, one thing that can change everything. And I want to look at that one thing tonight. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4, right? Yep, <laughs> sorry. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 7. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He writes to Timothy, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales kind of language we don't use much anymore, right? Like something out of Cinderella. What is Paul talking about here? Well, in Timothy's context, there was a lot of false teaching going around, and there was a lot of people who were saying wrong things about God. They were talking and teaching wrong expectations about what God had for his people. And so there all this false teaching. And so he's looking at, or he writes to Timothy, he says, hey, listen, have nothing to do with these godless myths and old wives' tales. In other words, have nothing to do with this kind of teaching that is void of any truth. Don't even take it seriously. Don't bother with any of this teaching that is going to add zero value to your ministry or to your church. Just forget it altogether. Now, we don't walk around using this, right? Like you don't describe, how was your date? Oh, he was such an old wives teller. Like you don't, we don't use that language, right? But in our context today, what that might look like or what I think Paul would describe as godless myths or old wives tales is any teaching or any way of thinking that adds zero value to your life. Any 
teaching or any ways of thinking that adds zero value to your life. Our culture and our world is full of this kind of teaching. Let me give you a few obvious examples. Maybe not so obvious, but one of them, credit cards. Right? You get into college, and all of a sudden you're a prime candidate to get a credit card. You got banks sending you junk mail. You pre-qualified, right? You feel pretty good about yourself. You got that Visa, MasterCard. No one uses MasterCard anymore. Y'all need to change that. You got American Express, and they said, hey, listen, you need to build your credit, right? You build your credit, and don't worry about the debt, right? It's interest-free until you graduate. It is all good. That is a terrible idea. Your credit is going to be fine, okay? If you can get out of college debt-free, if you can help it, do it, right? Don't, don't waste your time. Your credit is just fine. Another one, right? Leasing a car. There might, be, there might be a time in your life later on where it makes sense for you to lease a car. Not when you're in college. Don't throw money away at a car that you're not going to own. Give it to me. I'll do something more useful. I'll let you borrow my car for half the price, right? Like, don't godless myth, old wife, so don't waste your time with that. Another one, maybe on a more serious note, is that the decisions you make in college won't catch up to you later, right? Like what happens in college stays in college. That's not true, right? That's just a Vegas commercial. And that's not even true in Vegas, okay? There's a lot of people that learn that the hard way. I heard our senior pastor, Andy Stanley, say that decisions have babies. Isn't that so true? Your decisions have a baby. And it takes a minute for that baby to grow up for an annoying two-year-old. But eventually, right, it grows up and you realize the decision you made and you regret it. Old wives' tale. Another one, maybe if I get even more, just a little bit more blunt, that our culture and our world tells us, hey, before you marry it, before you marry them, you got to make sure it works out sexually. You got to make sure y'all jiving in there. So y'all got to try it before you buy it. Try it before you commit to it. That's terrible. That just doesn't make any sense. I'm telling you, like I'm four months in. I got this down. Okay. Godless myth. Old wives tale. It's all around us. And so the apostle Paul would look at you and he would look at me and he would say, hey, listen, Ignore any teaching or ways of thinking that would add zero value to your life. In fact, a lot of you would look at a certain area of your life that is lacking in value and you want to try to fix it. And the reason you know is because you believe some kind of old wives tarot godless myth. So the Apostle Paul says, instead, rather train yourself to be godly. Rather train yourself to be godly now this word godly sounds so like religious and spiritual and like okay jesus duke like what does that even mean what is he talking about in in week three of this series we're going to get really really tangible and specific with what it might look like in your life right but suffice it to say tonight the apostle paul is looking at timothy and this is what he's saying you need to develop your christian character You need to develop your Christian character. You need to reflect God in the way that you think and in the way that you live. You need to reflect God in your attitude and in your actions. Develop your Christian character. And he puts the responsibility on Timothy. He says, train yourself to be godly. That there's a responsibility Timothy were to play, and there's a responsibility that we play in that, that we are to train ourselves. We often think that godliness is like this thing that just kind of happens as you get older, right? You look at like a 75-year-old grandma and like, she's godly. Why? Because she's old, right? It's just this, this thing, like it just kind of happens. And we think that as we get older, we'll just naturally become more godly. And a lot of you are totally fine if that process happens after college. Um, but that's okay. It's a whole other story. But that, the Apostle Paul would say, that's not how it works. There's a responsibility you play. It doesn't just happen naturally. No, no, no. You have to train yourself to be godly why would apostle the apostle paul say that 
That's the answer here in this situation. And why in the world does that have any relevance to what we've been talking about? He goes on to say this in verse 8. For physical training is of some value, but godliness, training yourself to be godly, has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And so the Apostle Paul here is comparing physical training and spiritual training. He's saying, hey, look, physical training is good. Physical training will add value to, to a particular area of your life, and it will help you, and it is a good thing. However, spiritual training, spiritual training is more valuable compared to physical training because it will add value to every single area of your life. In other words, he's saying that spiritual training is more beneficial than physical training. That physical training is good, but compared to the scope of spiritual training, spiritual training blows it out of the water because it is beneficial for all, every single area of your life. Now, here's what the Apostle Paul isn't doing. He's not bashing physical training, right? Some of y'all, you work out and you're like, well, bump you, Apostle. That's not, he's not hating on physical training and he's not saying don't work out, okay? That's not, here's, here's the Apostle Paul's point. We spend a lot of time on all sorts of training. Y'all, some of y'all spend a lot of time doing physical training, right? You work out every day. You've you, you got a workout plan. You're in there hours during the week. I need to join you. I, maybe I will eventually. Um, you, you spend a lot of time trying to figure out what you're going to eat. You eat like smart, like really smart. Like you, you, work, you count your calories. You, you literally count. You can tell me right now how many calories you had. I couldn't even, I don't even know, like, I don't even know how many we need in a day, right? But you know what you, I mean, you know it all. You make your protein shake. You've got a special mix. You've got the expensive blender. I mean, you've got it down on the physical training side of things. You spend a lot of time and a lot of energy in your physical training. I think we could go even outside of that, right, outside of physical training. Let's just look at educational training. We spend a lot of time on educational training. In fact, a conservative estimate would say, right, you need a high school degree to get a college degree. Some of you didn't know that, but now you do. Um, you need a, so, sorry, a conservative estimate would say that from your freshman year of high school to by the time you get your degree after college, I almost said senior year, but some of y'all need five, that's okay, um, but for, for that time span is conservatively, probably more, at least 10,000 hours of educational training. 10,000 hours to get a college degree. Now that is 10,000 hours well spent. And the Apostle Paul is not saying, hey, look, read your Bible, stop lifting right? Start praying, stop making a protein shake. He's not saying you need to stop physically training. He's not saying you need to drop out of school in Jesus' name. That is terrible advice. Here's what he is saying. We spend so much time on all other kinds of training, and we ignore the one type of training that will add value to every area of your life, that we would spend some 10,000 hours getting a college degree and we struggle to spend 10 minutes a day reading the Bible. That we would be so meticulous and intentional to count our calories and how many calories we ate in a day, yet we give no second thought to how we come across to people and whether or not we're reflecting the heart of God whenever we interact with people every single day that we would spend so much time on all kinds of training, yet ignore the one type of training that will add value to every area of your life right now and in the life to come. And here's how the Apostle Paul, I think, would sum up this idea, that the pursuit of godliness promises, 
He says it's a promise. It holds promise that the pursuit of godliness promises to add value to every area of your life. That the pursuit of God promises, I love that thought, to add value, not make perfect, but to add value to every area of your life. You want to know how to ruin a good day quick? Spill water. You know what I mean? You're kind of getting your counter ready, and you spill water, and it goes everywhere, and you just hate your life, right? You spill water in the car, you need to go back and push restart on the day, just get back into bed and start back the next day. It's awful. When you spill water, it gets everywhere. It trickles down the counter, it trickles down into the cabinets, into every crick and cranny, and it's so annoying. You know what I'm talking about. You spill water in the car, forget about it, right? I mean, it's everywhere. You start finding that junk for weeks, it just won't dry. I don't know why science doesn't work, apparently, in your car, but water gets everywhere, even when it's contained in a bottle, unless you've got a service tumbler, even when it's contained in a bottle, it still condensates out. It's like water. Just stay where you are, right? Water just tends to get everywhere. It finds its way into every crick and cranny. As you pursue godliness, the very same thing happens. Godliness begins to find its way into every single area of your life. That as you pursue godliness, it will find its way into every conversation. It will find its way into every decision. It will find its way into every bit of your influence. It will find its way into every relationship. It will find its way into every friendship. It will find its way into every bit of your future marriage. It will find its way into your physical health. It will find its way into your self-control and into your character. It will find its way into every single area of your life. And the Apostle Paul says that the pursuit of that godliness promises to add value to every area of your life. And he uses this idea of training, right? We we don't really, when we think about godliness, we don't think about training. We just kind of think about being. But he's very intentional to use the word training. And I think there's a few reasons why he does that. And I think the first idea is this, that godliness requires practice. Godliness requires practice practice, right? You have to practice being godly. Here's why. Godliness does not come naturally. You know what comes naturally? Ungodliness. Yep, you're shaking your head because you're human. You know it. You're not in your head. Ungodliness is what's natural. We've all been on the receiving end of somebody else's ungodliness, and we've all been on the giving end of ungodliness. If you cut me off on 75, I'm going to give you ungodliness. And if you could hear what I'm saying when my windows are rolled down, I'd never get to speak here again, right? Like we're, ungodliness is easy. You don't have to try. You just have to breathe and live, right? That comes naturally. You have to practice what does not come naturally. And you know that. You have to practice what does not come naturally. And you have to practice it even when you don't want to. When you're training for something, you have to practice even when you don't want to. If you worked out just when you felt like it, you'd never get in shape, right? If you wanted to, if you studied only when you felt like it, y'all would be at the living room for 10 years because you'd never graduate college. You have to practice even when you don't feel like it. The Apostle Paul saying, hey, listen, godliness, it's not natural. You have to practice it even if you don't want to, right? You know how we talk about all the time. I hear, oh, if it's not genuine in your heart, don't do it. Man, that's bull. You need to do it. It doesn't matter if it's genuine in your heart or not because the apostle Paul says you need to practice it anyway. That you need to practice forgiveness when you'd much rather hold a grudge. That you need to practice love when you'd much rather be angry. That you need to practice um, self-control even if you'd rather live in the moment that you need to practice saying yes when you'd much rather say no, that you need to practice saying no when you'd much rather say yes. 
It's about practice, y'all. Allen Iverson reference. Man, I've always wanted to do that in a sermon. Here we go. It requires practice, the Apostle Paul says, even when you don't want to. And the second thing is that training, training godliness will not always be easy. If I could just be frank, students, in your pursuit of godliness, it will not always feel like you are adding value. Sometimes it will feel like you're missing out. I don't want to be the only one. All my friends are doing it. Oh, it's just one time. Oh, I just want to be a college student. There will be moments, there will be moments in your pursuit of godliness where you won't feel like you're adding value. You will feel like you're missing out. Hashtag FOMO. Anybody? Fear of missing out? Just learned that one. Thought I'd throw it in there. <laughs> but here's what you got to remember. Here's the hardest thing about godliness and in your pursuit of it. It's that whole decisions have babies idea. Hey, you got to be able to look past the now, look past the present, and look into the future that you are building with every single decision. It's not always going to be easy, but it's always going to be worth it. And as you practice, it will get easier. And the third one is this. It's a process. It's a process. Your training in godliness is a process. Here's why that's good news for everybody. You're going to get it wrong. You're not going to get it right all the time. You're going to mess up along the way. You're going to stumble. You're, going to, you're not going to do it right. You're going to think you failed beyond belief. Here's what everybody in this room needs to know tonight. It's a process, and it's okay that all of us are a work in progress. It is a process. Training in godliness is a process because we're all a work in progress, and you will forever be a work in progress. I hope that some of you are encouraged by this fact. You will never get there. In some sense, we will always be fixer-uppers. Because that's just kind of how it is. We will always be able to grow in our godliness every single day. You will never look enough like Jesus to just stop trying to look more like Jesus. <laughs> that should encourage us, though. It's a process. And your heavenly Father is okay with it being a process. He designed it that way, and he's okay that you're going to mess up. He expects it. He knows we're not going to be perfect. But it's a process. We have to trust the process. And so it's training because it requires practice. It will not always be easy, but it will always be worth it. And it's a process. And so that one thing that the Apostle Paul says is the pursuit of godliness. That one thing that could change everything is the pursuit of godliness because it promises, it promises to add value to every area of your life. And the way the Apostle Paul wraps this passage up, the way he kind of ends this passage that we're looking at, it's almost as if he knew it was going to be met with skepticism. <laughs> it's almost as if he knew Timothy or even us were going to read it one day and think, ah, maybe, Paul. No, you're an apostle and everything, but this is 2016, dog. You know, like, it was like, it was like he knew that people were going to doubt it. And so he wanted to kill all doubt. And listen now what he says here in verse 9. This, all that I've taught you about godliness, is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially those who believe. This, the training idea of godliness in the pursuit of it and that which it promises, is a trustworthy saying, he says. You can bank on this, the Apostle Paul says. You can count on this. 
You can believe this because it is a trustworthy saying. You can count on this more than you can count on Turkey next Thanksgiving. You can count on this more than you can count on Taylor Swift's next single hitting number one. You can count on this more than you can count on Steph Curry's three ball. You can count on this, Paul says. It is a trustworthy saying that deserves what? Your full acceptance. 100% buy-in, all in, everything you got. Here's what you know. You rarely benefit from anything going halfway. You rarely benefit from anything going halfway. You're not going to benefit from a diet going halfway. Just stop. Don't even try. Don't waste your time. It's all good. You'll be more disappointed, right? You, you don't benefit from studying going halfway. Some of you do, and we hate you, right? Um, you definitely don't benefit in a relationship going halfway. Some of you are like, yep, tried it, did not work. <clears throat> you don't benefit from anything going halfway. And the Apostle Paul says, don't go halfway on this thing. Go all in. It deserves full acceptance. And, and let, me, let me just kind of help illustrate what full acceptance might look like. Here's what all of us know. All of us know what it's like to be at a wedding reception. Dancing's about to start. Maybe it's not a formal. Maybe you go out to high school, you at prom. And you know what it's like at the beginning of dancing? Everyone's kind of like real frigid and stiff. Right? You're dancing like everybody's watching because everybody's watching. You're, you're kind of doing the Albert Brenneman from Hitch, right? You're just kind of staying right here. And you're okay with it. You're not letting loose, though. You haven't hit that next gear, and you know it because you're nervous. You haven't fully committed to dancing. We all know what it's like to be in that moment. And it's the worst when your date wants you to dance more. You know what I'm talking about? But then we all know what it's like to hit that moment where we hit that next gear. I'm not about, I'm not about to do it on stage. But we hit that next gear, and all of a sudden you start dancing like nobody is watching, right? And you're going for it. You're pulling moves that you didn't even know you could do. And it's amazing. And by the end of it, you are sweating because you just went all out on this dancing thing. You are fully committed. The Apostle Paul is saying, hey, don't dance like people are watching. I need you to dance and fully commit to this thing like nobody is watching. Because it is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And the Apostle Paul says, this is why we labor and strive. The Apostle Paul says, hey, look, I'm doing this too. I'm not just telling you to do this. I'm laboring and striving for this godliness as well. And this is so big. And the Apostle Paul tells us why. The Apostle Paul tells us why he's going for it and why we should go for it. He's telling us why we should pursue godliness, believing that it will add value to every area of your life. He says, because we, including himself, have put our hope in the living God. The Apostle says, hey, look, I'm, not, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna pursue this godliness thing because I'm not gonna put hope in myself. The Apostle Paul put hope in himself, right? And before he came to faith in Jesus, he pursued and, and tried to kill Christians. And a lot of you are looking at your life, and you know what it's like to put hope in yourself. The Apostle Paul said, look, I haven't put hope in myself. I haven't put hope and will not put hope in some kind of random teaching. I will not and have not put hope in any kind of false teaching that does not add any value to my life. I have not put my hope in the fleeting pleasures of sin. No, no, no. The Apostle Paul says, I have decided to bank on this because my hope is in a living God who is real, who is knowable, who is relational, and who is loving enough to be the Savior of all men, people, by sending his son Jesus to the cross so that we might have a relationship 
with him. And that living God wants to breathe life into areas of your life that are on life support. But there's a level that you play. There's a cooperation that you were designed to be a part of. There's a responsibility that we have. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, as you pursue godliness, as you pursue training in godliness, areas of your life that were dead, areas of your life that did not have much value will become viable again. Areas of your life that did not have much value will grow in value in a way that you have never thought possible before. It's a trustworthy saying that the pursuit of godliness promises to add value to every area of your life. So the question is, are you willing to try something different this year? Because some of you are like, man, I don't want 2015 again. Uh-uh. I ain't doing that. I'm good. Some of you are like, I'm not doing freshman year again. Some of y'all are still halfway through freshman year, and you're ready to not do freshman year again. <clears throat> are you willing to try something different this year? That, 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 that value in that one area that continues to not be what you hoped and want it to be, are you ready to try something different? The Apostle Paul has given you something different. Maybe for those of you that are kind of there, what, what steps are you taking to pursue godliness? Maybe it's dusting off the Bible. Maybe it's locating the Bible app on your phone again, re-downloading it, and saying, I'm going to read it a little bit. Maybe it's joining a small group and saying, I'm going to stop trying to do this thing alone because the more I do it alone, the more far off I get. Maybe it's committing to being here for the rest of this series and just seeing what God might have for you. But would you try it with us and pursue something different this year? Maybe something that you've never pursued before and watch it transform areas of your life in a way that you never thought possible. Because there's not that many guarantees in life. We all know that. You've been around, you get to college and you know for sure. You know for a fact there are not many guarantees. But the one thing we can count on is a God that loves you and a God that saved you. And the pursuit of his character and the pursuit of godliness promises to add value to every area of your life. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're thankful that you have created a way for us to live in relationship with you, that we can know you, that you created this whole thing, not that we would just be random beings you created, but real people that you made to be loved by you and we were created for you. And I pray that you would give us the courage to seek after you and to seek a godliness that will transform every area of our lives. I do pray for courage because that's what it's going to take. We thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray these things. Amen.